So th- this morning, we are returning to 2 Kings, and we are uh, in chapter 8. Last week, we were given this vivid Old Testament illustration of the, the horrifying ramifications of sin, followed by God's power to bring salvation to his people and the narrative concerning the siege of Samaria. And you may remember how the joy of salvation is likened to four starving lepers on the brink of death who discover an abandoned Syrian encampment full of bread and food and drink and clothing and riches. The unsurpassing joy of God's salvation was on full display. Well, this morning as we come to chapter 8, we are presented with another picture, this time an illustration of the life of costly obedience and the power of God to restore all things. We're reacquainted with a a, a figure we've met earlier, the wealthy Shunammite woman uh, that we saw in chapter 4. And you may remember then how this woman wanted to honor the, the great prophet Elisha, Um, And so she, with a gift of hospitality and wanting to demonstrate this hospitality to the prophet, she has a a room built on her roof uh, that will serve as a uh, a place where uh, Elisha and his servant can stay when they are traveling to and from their home in Samaria. And as it was Elisha's desire to bless this woman, um, he asked, what can I do for you? And he, he asks um, her, you know, knowing that she's childless, she promises to this woman that within the year that she will, in fact, uh, have a son. This woman is then a, a kind of uh, a reincarnation of Sarah, and the child she has is a miracle baby similar to Isaac. And so after the year, the promised baby arrives. However, as the story continues, uh, something quite unexpected takes place. And uh, the son, as he's uh, being raised as a child, falls sick. He becomes ill and he dies. And you recall that this Shunammite woman in great faith goes to the prophet Elisha. She almost drags him, kicking and screaming, back to her home to see what he can do for her son. And he is able to go up into this upper room and he raises the son back to life. It's only the second resurrection that we come across in uh, the entire Old Testament. And so our story picks up sometime after uh, that raising, that resurrection of her son, and it covers a space uh, of over seven years of famine, as you will see. Would you stand for the reading of the Word of God? And today we are in 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise. And depart with your household, and sojourn wherever you can. For the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. 
And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead, uh, the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appe- appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, here's the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields, from the day that she left uh, the land until now. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, Lord, grant us time and opportunity to tarry in the green pastures of your holy word. Lead us beside the still waters until the day of eternity dawns and the shadow of mortality sets. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament, 2 Kings um, specifically, portrays this Shunammite woman very positively. We, we know, like any human being, she had her flaws. She was no perfect uh, uh, woman this side of heaven. However, from the beginning, she is, in fact, shown to be a woman of faith with a commitment, a, a, you almost say a passionate commitment to obey and to honor God. And in part, she does this by honoring and obeying God's man, the prophet Elisha. And so our narrative uh, begins seven years, um, uh, well, prior to this famine that takes place sometime after. We don't know how much time elapses. It seems like it was relatively uh, uh, not long after the resurrection of her son that this, um, this meeting with Elisha takes place. And so Elisha directs this woman and her household to leave their land, to leave their home, uh, because God is going to, he, he is calling for a famine. This is a God-ordained famine upon the land. And we're told that this famine will last um, seven years. And so it is in obedience that the Shunammite woman, along with her household, uh, that they leave their land, they leave their home, they leave their entire country. We wanna, what I want to highlight here is just at the beginning that this would have been a very costly move uh, for this woman and for her household. On the one hand, we're told in the previous um, passage, chapter 4, that this woman and, and her household were well-to-do. They were wealthy. They were well-off. But their wealth derived from the income that came from their land, from harvesting uh, their land. And so uh, she, in obedience, um, uh, decides to leave, even though this land is the source of their income, is the source of all their financial income. And in abandoning her home and land, as the text makes clear, this means that someone else will have an opportunity to claim her land, to claim her home. And, and this appears to be uh, what takes place. 
the writer makes it clear that this was not just merely because of, of a famine. The famine doesn't appear to have even begun yet. Um, but in 2 Kings verse 2, we read this, that the woman arose and did, and it wants us to be explicit, according to the word of the man of God. What we're meant to see here is that this is uh, not a, I mean, it certainly in the end probably would have been a very practical thing, maybe even necessary thing. Uh, but what we're, we're understood here is that she's doing this based on the directive of Elisha. She's taking him at his word. She believes this to be the word of God for her and for her family. And so with that, uh, they obey. And this is a costly obedience. Here we're to see that when people sign up, so to speak, to follow Christ, sometimes they think, you know, that it's like you're reading through Deuteronomy and there are all these promises, like if you obey God, if you, you know, if you seek to, to, to um, uh, follow his laws, to follow his ways, that God will reward you in these marvelous ways. You know, he'll give an increase, you know, in terms of the language of the Old Testament, an increase for your crops, an increase for your home and blessing and, 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 and so forth. And so we're sometimes a little surprised when it's not so easy (laughs) after placing your faith in Christ. And I would suggest the older you get, the more evident this becomes as there are just more opportunities for you to experience the rigors and, and, and the difficulties of life in this world. Now, when we become, uh, when we place our Christ and place our faith in Christ, Indeed, we do find unexpected hardships, calamities, deep disappointments along our life's journey. Again, the Shunammite woman, she she wasn't planning for this famine. That that was not on her life's agenda, that suddenly she was going to have to uproot for seven years. And this becomes, in reality, a kind of forced exile for her. And it is a good picture of what Christians can expect. One of the the passages of Scripture that was so important to the Puritan, John Bunyan, he's the author of the well-read Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, He lived in the the 17th century, and he was imprisoned um, uh, for uh, a long time because of his uh, Christian faith. Um, Well, this passage was so significant to him from Acts chapter 14, verse 22, which where we read, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Okay, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We think it's strange that if we're really committed to Christ and we're genuinely seeking to obey Christ with our hearts and lives, that uh, he will keep us from experiencing anything really bad. That's what we expect. Au contraire, mon frère. And what we need to understand, and what the Old Testament and the New Testament um, are trying to, to clearly demonstrate for us, is that these painful trials, these tribulations, they're not necessarily, sometimes they can be, but they're not necessarily a sign that something is wrong with us or something that's wrong with our faith in God. That's often what we conclude. We have to remember, we forget that the world is a hostile place for believers. And I'm not talking about persecution, though that's a part of it. But I'm talking in the way the New Testament describes our life in this world. It describes us as being surrounded by enemies, 
those enemies being uh, the devil, the world, and the flesh. We have this spiritual enemy who hates us, who is hostile to the well-being of our souls. We live in a world full of temptations and snares that's antithetical to faith uh, in, in Christ. And then to top it off, we have our own hearts to contend with. We have our own, you know, temptations that uh, afflict us from the inside, fighting and warring against us. Life in this world uh, is a, a hostile experience. There will not be a golden age. There never has been. There will not be utopia as long as there is death and the things that lead to death are still present in the sin-soaked world. But we have a comfort as God's people. We have many comforts, in fact, as God's people. And one of the things that we'll see here, and I'll come back to, is there's a comfort in knowing that God will one day triumph over evil, that he will one day set all things to right. That's part of what's being illustrated for us in this narrative concerning the Shunammite woman. But our comfort as believers goes beyond this. There's a present comfort for us as we experience hardships and tribulations. As we walk through, Revelation describes us walking through the wilderness that's tapping into that Old Testament um, uh, uh, life of of the Israelites wandering through the wilderness. As we wander through the wilderness of this world, part of that is a judgment on sin. But it's also something that we need to understand is necessary. The tribulations, you know, in, in programming, they have this phrase, you know, it's not a bug, but it's a feature of the programming. Tribulations in this life are not a bug. They're a feature. They're part of God's design for us. Because what the tribulations produce within us is they're leading us and preparing us for the world for the age that is to come. They're preparing us for the new earth and the new heavens. And so it is, in fact, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians, for this slight momentary affliction. Now, remember, this is the apostle Paul writing, and when he's describing the slight momentary affliction, he's using that to describe his persecution, his beatings, his being stoned and imprisoned and shipwrecked. That's what he's describing as uh, these momentary uh, uh, afflictions. But he says the slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The tribulation is necessary for us. A long obedience in the same direction to steal a title from Eugene Peterson. Well, that is what this woman so elegantly models for us. Her attitude is not my will, but thy will be done. That's her heart's desire, and it is beautiful in the Lord's sight. These slight and momentary afflictions are likewise necessary for us to make us beautiful in God's sight. The testimony, um, I was just uh, with a pastor earlier this week, and he was telling me about Tim Keller, who um, I think he has pancreatic cancer, and I'm not sure how he's doing, but, but he was reading, a, um, uh, or he heard some interview with Tim Keller after he's been through this for quite some time, 
And, and Tim Keller was reflecting and saying, you know, if I had to choose to go back prior to the cancer and lose the spiritual blessings and the things that the Lord has shown me in my cancer, he says, I don't know that I would go back. That the Lord has used this in his life to build and to grow him in his, uh, in his soul and in his, uh, uh, his relationship with the Lord. Well, another comfort that we have as we face the tribulations and afflictions of this world is that God, you know, we're not just looking for the world that's to come, but to recognize that God is present with us now. That's part of this, what we're reading in this narrative. Even in the tribulations that we experience, God is still sovereign. He is still providentially working all things for our good and for his glory. And when we understand this, when we believe it, Part of the application here is there's no real need to worry. No need to worry. God's got this. The text explicitly tells us that the precipitating factor for the Shunammites for her need to leave her home and country was um, the, the directive of Elisha followed by this famine, a famine brought on specifically. He describes it as being called by God. God has called for this famine. And that may surprise us. But the Bible is also clear about these things, that these natural disasters, are, they, they, they're not outside God's sovereign purview, that they are all under his divine control. They're, they're according to his purposes. We, of course, do not understand how all of this is possible, but God, you know, you think if, if God has the power to gr- create the universe, if he has the power to create man from the dust, he has the power to oversee the weather patterns of our planet. And then we see God's providential uh, presence in something else that takes place in this narrative. So the, the king of Israel is King Jehoram at this time, and he's having a conversation. He just happens to be having a conversation with Elisha's servant, uh, Gehazi. Uh, the king asked Gehazi, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And then in verse 5, um, uh, we read this. And while Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, uh, and how he had restored to life, um, he, uh, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. At the very moment, okay, so here's, here's what we're, we're reading. So this woman in her household they have been in a kind of self-imposed exile in a foreign land, okay? And, and this is, you can imagine, probably not easy. I mean, they're essentially refugees um, uh, during the, these seven years. And so the moment they decide to come back, at that, not an hour before, not an hour later, but the moment this woman appeals, appears before the king to have her case heard, apparently her home and her land has been taken, um, probably it has been annexed by the government, probably by the king himself. And so she's there to appeal to have this returned to her. At that very moment, just by chance, quote-unquote, Gehazi is having this conversation. The Lord puts on the king's heart, hey, here you have this opportunity to talk with the, with the prophet's servant. And, and not only are they d- talking, but the thing that Gehazi happens to be talking about is the resurrection of this woman's son. 
And that's the moment she shows up to have her case appealed, to to have her case heard. What we're meant to see here is that this is not by chance, that this is not by happenstance, um, that this is in fact the Lord's doing, that he is so sovereign uh, over life and over the details of our lives that he can even affect the king's heart. He affects the direction of the conversation. He makes sure that Gehazi is there at the exact right time and that this is the time, not an hour later, not an hour earlier, that when this woman, this mother, uh, shows up. Now, apparently, um, also, it also appears that in this, by this time, her husband doesn't appear to be present. And in, the, in chapter 4, we did read that he was already advanced in years, and so um, that may uh, account for why he, he doesn't appear um, in, in this um, uh, uh, narrative. Now, you might imagine and I would be in this situation myself, that as this woman and her household are traveling back, they've probably received news that their, their land is not theirs. And so they've got to make this, you know, it would be against the odds attempt in getting it back, okay? Um, the kings of Israel are not known for, for uh, granting justice to widows. Um, and you may recall in the story with King Ahab, um, he wanted land that was near his uh, palace so badly, this vineyard that was near his uh, palace, a vineyard owned by a man named Naboth that the king had him killed in order to annex this vineyard. That's the kind of justice that we have seen in the northern kingdom. And so this woman, you can imagine, she's like, oh, you know, this is a long shot. <laughs> I, you know, is the king going to listen to me, you know, and... Um, uh, but God was way ahead of her, preparing the way, even as she's worrying. And, and, and part of what we're meant to see is she didn't need to worry that God was at work on her behalf, that he was arranging this meeting that she was to have with the king. And not only is the land and the home restored to her, But we read on top of this something that is quite unexpected, and that is all the produce. He assigns this official to her and says all the produce that would have been harvested over the last seven years. That even seems to include the amount that might have gone for taxation. All of it is to be restored to this mother. So if you're reading this from a northern perspective, you'd be like, wow. You don't see that kind of justice take place in the northern kingdom very often. And here it is that God not only restores the bare minimum for her, her house and land, but he restores it in abundance, all that would have been harvested over uh, those long years. And the big picture for us is this. God first takes us through a wilderness journey. And, and, and I think part of the significance, because if you're just reading through this narrative, you think, well, why is this even here? It doesn't seem like that, um, uh, that important, or it doesn't seem to rise in significance to be made, you know, a story of the Bible. But I think part of the significance here is that you have to understand um, that so often you see this, the, the, it's playing around with this idea of exile and return and restoration. 
And so this woman's, um, uh, this woman's having to leave the land and go outside of the land into a pagan land, it, it's, a, it's a kind of exile. And this is also part of God's, I think, sovereign direction for why Elisha directs her to go in this way. And this would have been so encouraging because um, don't forget that the first audience for the completed works of First and Second Kings would have been the Jewish exiles who had been exiled in Babylon. And this would have been a huge encouragement to those Jewish exiles, thinking about the promises that they had been given through the prophet Jeremiah and through uh, Daniel, that they would be restored to their land, that somehow they too would return. And they would have had to wonder, how is the Lord going to accomplish that? And so you have this little um, exile and return in, in, in a microcosm in the story of this woman. And for the Jewish people whose life had also become a kind of, you know, hardship uh, for a while, it was refuge, refugee status. And, um, and over time, they would have developed homes and businesses and so forth. But this question, of how do you get back to your homeland, would have been a, a, a large a looming question in their hearts and minds. And here is this encouragement, the Lord will, will prepare the way. And as Christians, we need to understand um, that this idea that God sort of, you know, he creates the world in such a way that it just kind of winds down on its own. We, we call this kind of a deistic view of God, that God creates the world and then he just stands far off in the background and lets history unwind on its own. That is not a biblical vision of God. In fact, what we're meant to see is that as we walk through this world, that God is intimately present with us. This means that God knows our struggles. He knows our challenges. He knows the trials and the tribulations and the losses and disappointments that afflict our hearts and our souls. And he is involved in the very details of our lives often arranging chance meetings, chance conversations, chance provisions for us that we just didn't see coming. So often, do not forget that the best blessings in life are not the things that we work so hard for, that we just, you know, exert ourselves. The best things are the things that God just gives us by his mercy, by his grace, in answer to prayer that you never see coming. This is the way God loves to operate. Jesus reminds us that God knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows not even the little sparrows that nobody cares about. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from my father's will, says Jesus. And by the way, are you not so much more valuable than sparrows? God's got this. He will. Now, he will take you through the desert, but he will go with you through that desert experience. He will be present. But let's come back to the servant of Elisha who appears before the king. Note the significance of Gehazi's witness. Now, these are Elisha's stories, but in this case, Elisha is only present at the beginning of the story, before the famine has even started. Otherwise, no Elisha. He's absent. 
But even in his absence, the prophet looms large. That's part of what we're meant to see here. He looms large through the witness, through the message of Gehazi about Elijah. The king says, tell me the wonderful things that Elisha has done. And Gehazi, he's telling the wonderful things. And, and I think part of what the Lord wants us to see here is that even the message concerning this prophet, an Old Testament prophet, even the words lead to life. Even the message ends up leading to restoration. It leads to abundance. And this is a fascinating aspect of the story. Now, let's talk about Gehazi just for a moment, because the last time we, we were, you know, uh, uh, meeting up with Gehazi was in the story of, of Naaman, the leper. And that story concludes with this kind of reversal where uh, Naaman is healed of his leprosy, but then uh, um, uh, because of uh, Gehazi's greed and, and of his deceptiveness, he ends up um, being cursed with the leprosy of Naaman. And so you see this kind of, uh, you know, this transfer and, and, and a kind of substitution here where, in this sense, Gehazi takes the, the, the leprosy of Naaman. So here, though, it doesn't appear that Gehazi is afflicted with this um, serious degree of leprosy. So how do we understand this? And, and the answer is we don't know for sure, Okay. Uh, there, there are some possibilities. One is, is that the chronological order is such that this story came before the story of Naaman, but most scholars don't believe that's the most likely. They, they think that's unlikely given the duration of this famine and how the trajectory of, of kings goes. The second idea is that Gehazi's um, leprosy, you know, we have to remember leprosy, uh, the way we describe it is in terms of Hansen's disease, and we, we think of limbs falling off and so forth. But leprosy in the Old Testament could refer to various kinds of skin diseases. And it's possible that the skin disease that he had uh, did not exclude him, perhaps, from uh, the presence of the king. Normally, it would have. It would have meant that he was unclean. Maybe the northern king didn't care. We don't know. But there's another possibility that a lot of scholars think is maybe even the most plausible. And that is that Gehazi came to his senses and that Gehazi humbled himself and that he repented, and that he was healed through the prophet Elisha of his, um, uh, of his leprosy. And you say, well, didn't Elisha tell Gehazi that this would last forever, right? That was part of the judgment. And this is just a good time, you know, we don't know exactly what happens with Gehazi, but it is a good opportunity to remind ourselves of the small print. The small print throughout the scriptures is this. God issues these stern warnings of judgment. But the small print is, unless you humble yourself, you come to your senses and repent, and the Lord hears, and the Lord relents, and the Lord forgives. Recall in the story of Jonah, the message went forth through the prophet Jonah that in 40 days, you know, um, uh, that this entire city of Nineveh would be destroyed under the wrath of God. And yet it didn't happen. Why? Because the Ninevites repented, just like Jonah was worried they would. And so, but they do. And the result is that the judgment does not come upon these Ninevites. So do not forget the small print. But regardless of what was true with respect to Gehazi, 
One thing we do know for sure is, uh, is that in this case, irrespective of his uh, unbelief and sin, that God was not finished with Gehazi yet. In this narrative, Gehazi is kind of acting like an apostle of Elisha. Elisha is, we don't know where Elisha is. He's somehow just departed. And here's Gehazi, like the apostles of Christ, proclaiming the truth about the prophet, and namely the death and resurrection that Elisha had facilitated through the son of this Shunammite woman. The message is powerful. His witness means life. It means abundant restoration. And we need to see, Elisha does not have to be physically present for the people to be blessed with life and abundance. The message concerning uh, Elisha is enough. Well, this gives us a glimpse into the power of the message about a far greater prophet, doesn't it? Like Elisha, Jesus does not have to be physically present in order to bless people with new life, to ultimately um, uh, grant a far greater restoration. The message that we proclaim, the gospel or the good news concerning Jesus, the good news concerning the great works of Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection is a message that we have a privilege of sharing with others. And it is a message with great power. Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek may we measure up to Gehazi. May we look for those opportunities to likewise tell others about the marvelous things that Jesus has done. Ours is a message that, if believed, will result in new life and ultimately will lead to the full and complete restoration, not just a restoration of our spiritual walk with the Lord. That happens now. But of a restoration of the world that we long for, where ultimately death is decimated, where there's no longer sin and sorrow and sickness, a new heaven, a heaven and a world that's conceived of as a marriage feast. Well, let's pray. Oh God, let not the good seed of your word be caught away from our minds by evil thoughts, or scorched by tribulations, or choked with the cares and pleasures of this world. But Lord, may your word take root in our hearts and spring up to your praise in our lives through the grace and the power and the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.